Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced at the studios of 3CR on unceded Wurundjeri country in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. There's really, for me, no separation between labour issues and environmental issues around climate change because they're absolutely bound up together. As bushfires have been raging across the continent since October last year, our cities have been blanketed in toxic smoke. What are the health impacts of this? And how might workers respond to this new environmental health crisis? Today on Earth Matters, workers taking collective action to protect their health and confront the climate crisis. First up, what can health experts tell us about bushfire smoke? So my name's Catherine Barakoff. I'm a nephrologist, which is a kidney specialist at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, I am also currently the Victorian Chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia. What we know is that bushfire smoke is composed of a really complex mix of, of a number of different gases and particles. Um, probably the one that poses the greatest risk to people close to the fires is carbon monoxide. So carbon monoxide is a gas. Um, when it's inhaled, what it does is it enters the bloodstream and, and displaces oxygen from haemoglobin. And what this means is that it's much harder to get oxygen to the tissues very quickly, this can lead to things like confusion and dizziness and disorientation, and obviously um, that can impact reaction times, judgment, and therefore safety of people on the fire grounds. Within minutes of high-level exposure to carbon monoxide, people can suffocate and die. So carbon monoxide poisoning is the major cause of death from smoke inhalation. So that is the most immediate risk to firefighters and people in smoke, very heavily smoke-exposed areas. The bushfire smoke also contains a number of other gases as well, and two of the most concerning ones are nitrogen dioxide and sulphur dioxide, and both of these are very irritating to our respiratory tract, um, so they can cause things like cough and wheeze and shortness of breath in people that are otherwise healthy, but particularly in people with underlying lung conditions. Also in bushfire smoke, we have lots of different particles of different sizes. So the large particles that, that are in bushfire smoke are what cause bushfire haze that we've seen you know, in bushfire-affected areas and across our cities. You know, these deposit in our waterways, on our beaches, on our cars. But um, the ones that are more problematic to health are the very tiny particles that we can't see in bushfire smoke. And probably the most concerning of these is one called PM2.5. So PM stands for particulate matter. Um, so that is the particles that are in smoke. PM2.5 is really tiny, so less than 2.5 microns in diameter. And what that means is that it can be inhaled very deeply down into the lungs. Um, once it's in the lungs, it can cause inflammation and that, again, can cause respiratory problems or lung problems or lung symptoms, even in people that are otherwise healthy. But again, it's very problematic in people with underlying lung disease. Even more concerning, the PM2.5 can be absorbed into the bloodstream. Um, from there, it's been known to cause heart attacks. It's been associated with strokes. Um, it's also associated with lung disease, diabetes, preterm births. More recent studies have linked acute exposure to PM2.5 with septicemia, which is infection in the bloodstream, 
um, fluid and electrolyte disorders, urinary tract infections and acute kidney injury. So it's a really concerning particle from a health point of view. What we know is that the health effects of PM 2.5 are dose-dependent, so the higher the exposure that a person has, the more health effects that we see. We see health effects even at the very low everyday levels of PM 2.5 that we have in our cities. So PM 2.5 is in bushfire smoke, but it's also released from car exhaust and from coal-fired power stations and other sort of sources of pollution. So we have background levels background low-ish levels in society, those cause health impacts. What we're seeing now is is levels many, many, many times higher. So the risk of health impacts is, is in line with that many, many times higher. The World Health Organization guidelines say that we should be aiming for a 24-hour average exposure of 25 micrograms of PM2.5 per cubic metre, Um, In Canberra recently, we had levels of up to 5,000 micrograms per cubic metre, so that's 200 times in excess of what's thought to be a safe level. And even that safe level is not thought by many to be safe. You know, there really is no safe level of air pollution. You know, the lower you go, the better for health, the higher you go, the worse for health. So, you know, really the the, the risks and, and or the risks and possible impacts of prolonged bushfire smoke is is really substantial and concerning. As I mentioned, anyone um, can be impacted by the effects of bushfire smoke, but some groups are particularly vulnerable. Um, those, as I've said, include those with underlying heart or lung disease, but also children. You know, they've got developing bodies, developing lungs. Um, they breathe faster, so they're more at risk. Also, pregnant women because developing babies are also particularly at risk. Also, elderly people because they have typically have much more in the way of underlying health conditions. So, you know, the, really the message is that everyone needs to be cautious, but we especially need to watch out for those vulnerable groups in society. Outdoor workers were the first to be affected by bushfire smoke. Sydney dock workers and their union made national headlines in early December when they walked off the job due to dangerously unsafe air quality. Good afternoon. My name's Bradley Dunn. I work for the Maritime Union of Australia in the... Uh Port Botany, Port of Sydney, New South Wales branch, and uh, I've been a Maritime Union official for 20 years. We've been working in uh, what were testing conditions outside for you know a week, week or so, a fortnight leading up to it, when it deteriorated to the point where uh, before we decided that we would cease work. Um, at no stage in the lead up to when it was horrendous, the conditions which I think off memory was December the 5th, and there was you know, visible ash falling down on everybody. Um, the visibility, not only the breathing, was, was a problem for us because we're 70 metres in the air in cranes, you know, picking up boxes with uh, spreaders in ships. And, and it wasn't only just the breathing, and it, it was the visibility that was a problem as well. So with a combination of that, come December 5th, we decided to cease work. Now, in the lead-up to that, the company at no stage, neither company, all three stevedores in Sydney, neither of the three companies came to the membership and said, listen, we think it's bad, let's put some measures in place to combat this. Not at all. So when it wasn't too bad, what we said was we would use the heat agreement, which is a clause in our, nas- in our national agreement, which allows us at 38 degrees 
to have 15-minute breaks every hour and rotate and get out of the heat. So we went to the company and we suggested that at that stage of proceedings, there was no problem or fight back from the company because obviously all the cranes kept going. Now, when it deteriorated to the point where we couldn't really see out of the windows of the cranes and people were, you know, crook, and it was probably a build-up of the last fortnight as well. So once we decided to walk off, they docked us, stood us down off pay, and they, they didn't hand out warnings, but they threatened to all because we had the audacity to uh, look after our own health and well-being. Subsequent to the stoppage, there were some negotiations, and only one company ended up sticking to their guns and docking their workers. Can you just tell me a bit more about how you coordinated that across, um, across the three? We have a Sydney branch safety committee, which would see a representative from all our places of work that the union covers, uh, having regular meetings and sharing information, strategies, tools to make our workplaces safer. And they are able to coordinate with each other and discuss the hazard and come up with a solution, which we've now got a common solution, which we all follow. And it's got triggers and mechanisms in there, which sees us stopping with, a, with an agreement from the company subsequent to the two two legal stoppages. But I've no doubt that had we have not stood up for ourselves and walked off when it was so bad, we would not have those agreements throughout the port now. I think it's kind of interesting that, that you talked about this sort of now there's an agreement and there's triggers. But this, this didn't come about because of the government or the company. It came about through workers and, and your union taking action. So it's really you guys have been at the forefront in terms of creating a bit of uh, structure, protocol around dealing with the with the uh, bushfire smoke. And the poor workers have paid the price because some have been docked up to four to, four to five hours, you know, which is half a day's work because they all had the audacity to, to walk off and, and not resume work until such time as WorkSafe came down and said, all right, don't go out there until you've got these special P3 masks when it's like that and the company had to get a special delivery of them in and there was a delay until when they came in. And when they came in, the people who weren't in the expedition cabins couldn't go to work, and we, and we refused. And when we got the marks, and when we had some measures in place, uh, we went back to work. And the only other time we stopped was when the vision was bad, which no one wants to talk about and no one wants to take into account, because all they talk about is air quality. But when you're on a crane 70 metres in the air and you're putting it on the back of a trailer where a fellow worker is driving... You need to be able to see. And when those vision, when your vision's impaired through dirty windows with ash on them and there's smoke in the air, or, or I don't know how, even in an air-conditioned cabin, it can be deemed safe. And that's the only other reason that we stopped as well. And that's now been factored into our triggers. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. On today's show... Workers responding collectively to bushfire pollution and looking for a working-class environmentalism. It's not just outdoor workers who are at risk due to extreme air pollution. As Canberra was blanketed in smoke for weeks, even indoor workers found that their workplaces became unsafe. So my name's Adam Mayers. I am a CPSU delegate working in the government in the ACT. Um, and for the last couple of months or so, we've been dealing with the um, rather devastating effects of bushfire 
both in outside environments but also inside environments. So uh, on the, t- the 20th of December was the day where the smoke, the smoke level was quite high and um, I obviously work in an office environment a couple of uh, levels up and the smoke was so thick outside that as people came through the lobby and then up the lift, smoke was basically following them in. Um, so I start work at about 8 o'clock in the morning and by about 10 a.m., the smoke was so bad that I could, we couldn't see down the hallway in our kind of main uh, work area. Um, and so, yeah, basically with the air conditioning uh, not on recirculate at that stage, um, it was basically pumping smoke in as well as the smoke all coming through the main doors and everything like that. So obviously when you, can't, you can barely see down the corridor and it's that obvious that the workplace is full of smoke, it, it has terrible effects on your health and everything else. So, yeah. And how did you and your colleagues respond to this? Um, so at that cause it's 20th of December, so a lot of the um, HSR, the health and safety representatives, um, were away. Um, so the usual practice would be that you would go and speak to your manager and see what their response is. And if that was unsatisfactory, you'd go and raise your health and safety concerns with an HSR. Um, HSRs are one of the few people, pretty much the only people other than top management in the workplace that can actually get a workplace shut down. Um, But in our case, there wasn't any HSRs around. Um, So it was primarily a case of uh, myself as a delegate going around the workplace and checking in on people with, that I knew had respiratory problems. There were people who were openly coughing and, 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 and really struggling with the conditions and highlighting to managers, both just above me, but also on the executive level, about what was going on. Um, as a worker, you have a right under the Work Health and Safety Act not to work in an environment that is you deem unsafe. Um, now, that obviously impacts uh, casuals in a different way to full-time people in the public service like myself. But um, what the union has told me and what I did was basically you raise the alarms of everyone in your workplace, particularly managers, and try and get them to do something about the hazardous work conditions. And then basically you can activate your own right to leave the workspace. And as you do that, make sure you call the union to make sure that they um, have the full amount of information and can then um, be in communication with the relevant HR in your workplace. So unions, ACT... Uh, has responded to this and they organised a conference uh, which you spoke at. Can you tell us about that? The majority of the questions we were getting and the majority of the concerns coming from people in the audience were from people who um, were contracted workers or part-time workers in the kind of service industry. So working uh, in the shopping centres, working in cafes, um, those kind of environments. And basically you have certain rights uh, under those conditions. So, for example, everyone has the right to cease work if they feel as though the workplace is unsafe. Every single business, every single business owner, every single employer of any individual uh, has a duty to ensure that the workplace is safe. But the issue is that a lot of these casual workers and part-time workers who come into a work environment that is dangerous and decide to leave for obvious reasons, um, there's no guarantee at all that they are paid for the work that they've done or the work that they're meant to do. Um, and obviously that, that's something that was raised a lot um, during the forum. And if you aren't able to go to work and work for reasons completely outside of your control and therefore you aren't able to you know, put, put the food on the table that you need or pay your rent or anything like that, that obviously has devastating effects for people. So particularly for those most vulnerable workers whose rights um, aren't as secure as, say, someone in a privileged position such as myself working full-time in the public service, there are real concerns about the impact of smoke on on those workers and their ability to live. Absolutely. And coming out of that forum, 
Was there discussion as to how workers would organise across uh, different workplaces and especially how uh, workers in uh, workplaces such as yourself, where you're better off, can support those workers who are more at risk? Absolutely. Um, the obvious, the first, the first point is, is if you're not part of your union, make sure you join your union. Because, say, in the case of CPSU, um, the, the community public sector union that I'm a part of, um, that covers you know workers across the public sector and the community sector. Um, and so any workers, no matter their their pay grade or their position, um, will be covered by the union in the same way. Um, so hopefully, individuals such, such as myself are in a better position. Um, you know, my employment is fairly secure. Um, can leverage that to help support the workers at the who are more at risk. I, I think the unions are trying to come up with kind of a broad base of um, policy in terms of um, smoke hazard going forward. I know that, for example, there's some work, uh, some people talking about things like uh, rental assistance for people who you know are working casually and have had their hours um, cut because they can't go into a workplace that's been shut down because of the smoke hazard. But one thing that I would like to see, and I think a lot of other people um, involved in the union would like to see, is that these smoke events, particularly when it's just, you know, when, when Canberra becomes the most polluted city in the world for a day, that it is recognised that it's basically impossible to escape those conditions. If you have to go to work, even if the work is the most well-insulated, cleanest air work environment um, you can get, you still have to, you know, catch the tram or catch the bus to get into work. You still have to jump in your car to get to work. Um, you still are going to be exposed to the smoke risk. So what I would like to see in the medium to longer term is perhaps that um, governments and employers treat these kind of uh, abnormal hazardous days as if they would treat, say, a public holiday. And that is that there's a recognition that workers cannot... Um, you know, workers have no control over whether or not the smoke, the smoke levels are at dangerous, um, are dangerous and... Therefore, if they can't go to work because of the smoke, well, they get a day off and you're paid for the work that you would have done otherwise. And I realise there would be pushback from that, you know, from, from businesses saying that obviously they're getting no business and yet still having to pay their workers. But in terms of the most at-risk members of the population in this case, it's, it's, it's workers. They had nothing to do with the kind of climate conditions that have created these disastrous uh, weather, weather events. Um, and yet they are having to bear the brunt of um, the suffering when they're laid off work for the day because the air quality is too poor to go in. So I'd like to see some sort of contingency made for that because as work becomes more and more casualised and people's jobs are less secure, these kind of weather events just impact the least well-off and least secure members of our community the most. Bushfire pollution is affecting different workers differently. Can we use workplace health and safety law as a collective response to the climate crisis? And can we look to union history for examples of working-class environmentalism? I'm Elizabeth Humphreys. I'm a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. Climate change has really different effects on different people depending on whether you're a precarious worker or a casual worker, you're in labour hire, or whether you're in a more unionised site with um, more protections and a more um, a more traditional full-time ongoing job. And so... There's really, for me, no separation between labour issues and environmental issues around climate change because they're absolutely bound up together. The effect of climate change is going to be different for different groups of people depending on where they live, how much money they have, how much they can 
take action to remove themselves from problematic situations like bush fire smoke or extreme heat. But a lot of people in the end are just going to really be at risk. Talking about precarity and working in workplaces where there's little or no union uh, density, there would be far more workplaces which have health and safety representatives than union reps. How can we see the use of health and safety uh, law in an activist way by workers in workplaces where they're not unionised or they don't have the clout of, of a big union? I think like... Like any political issue um, or any campaigning issue, you just have to take the first step and talk to those around you um, and potentially use those occupational health and safety delegates and committees um, in order to try and address the situation. But again, it's not going to solve it for all workers. One project we um, did last year in the city of Sydney with a grant from the council was to look at the experience of council's outdoor workers compared to food delivery riders who are self-employed and don't have an employer and what the impacts of extreme heat were on them. Now, it would be absolutely the same for bushfire smoke. The outdoor workers are employed full-time and they're able to shift work to cooler parts of the day or to days where it's not hot and they can manage their work processes, they've got much more autonomy in how they manage that um, as individuals and as groups of workers and much better protections, obviously, as permanent ongoing workers. But obviously food delivery cyclists and document delivery cyclists have to deliver things by certain times and that means it just has to be done. Um, And it's the same for police and um, uh, firefighters and other emergency personnel climate change has to be solved because not all things can be mitigated. So thinking about the tactic of walking off, say, like, or closing a site, as some workers have been able to do, could we see it as a strategy in which we could start to have de facto climate strikes in an industrial environment, legal environment, where we're not able to take industrial action? Do you see there being utility in workers using workplace health and safety law in an activist way, in a coordinated way, to push the issue of climate change? And could this have any benefit for workers who aren't able to leverage that? I think if, if workers are at risk, they should take what action they can to mitigate that risk or remove it. And mitigate it might be more breaks and shifting work around, um, working more slowly potentially and removing it in terms of, say, heat stress or bushfire smoke maybe mean not working at all. I don't think there's any trick that can be used in terms of a political confrontation with politicians who won't act on climate change. Yes, we might. The process of practising good occupational health and safety might politicise workplaces because the connections are made with climate change and I absolutely hope that has that happens and that's sort of what our research is about but in the end climate strikes are going to have to be political they can't be sneaky is what I'm what I'm guess I'm getting at um, occupational health and safety requirements are clearly going to play a role in 
um, in the political discussion. But in the end, if we need climate strikes, which we do, it's going to take people actually taking industrial action that may be outside the law. Just because the law is the law doesn't mean the law is reasonable. And there's been lots of times in Australian history where people have taken um, action outside the law, taken strike action when they're not legally able to because it's the only power they have to exert over a situation. I think in that article we talk about the Green Bands and the construction union, the Builders' Labourers' Federation in New South Wales refusing to pull down working-class housing, protecting um, uh, parks and um, environmental sites, and they took strike action at Macquarie University over the treatment of a lesbian student and a gay student. These were all not legal, but they were done on the basis that it was the right thing to do. Um, and I think it's a great example because it also demonstrates that it's not always true that the concerns of the labour movement and the concerns of the environment movement have been counterposed and there have been times where they've come together. Um, and the Green Bands is, is, you know, famous internationally as being one of the early environment movements where a union was involved in sort of leading it. Um, and these a lot of those issues around who has the right to profit and who has the right to use geographic space are absolutely present in current debates around climate change. You know, what are the rights of coal companies versus what are the rights of Indigenous people that are having their land mined, of, um, you know, people who are suffering the impacts of climate change, which is directly the cause of the way that things are produced um, in a capitalist society. In the end, I would hope that, or the aim for me is, can we have those sorts of very political conversations in our trade unions, not just use OH&S possibilities, but to, I guess, take more, more direct political action. Elizabeth Humphreys, researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney. And we also heard from Catherine Barakas, from Doctors for the Environment Australia, Bradley Dunn, dock worker at Port Botany, an MUA official, and Adam Mayers, public sector worker and CPSU delegate in Canberra. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's national environmental justice program. I'm Tisha Ahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, Care of 3CR. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.